My next guest is a Zen Buddhist monk, a former composer, a former mathematician from Cambridge. He's a former co-founder of Wake Up Movement, an organization dedicated to educate young people to meditate. Today, he's a leading voice in teaching applied mindfulness to climate activists, business leaders, artists, and scientists, and a monk. Uh, he's really passionate to bring to a more compassionate society as well as a collective awakening. And if you love what you hear, the knowledge bombs that he drops, go to uh, plumvillage.org and thicknonhanfoundation.org forward slash donate because the monastery can always use your support. Please welcome Brother Spirit. Thank you, CK. Thank you for your introduction. Very kind. Thank you so much for being here. It's quite a privilege for us to connect. Um, I have so many questions. I've done a lot of research. You're mm -hmm. a fascinating man and a teacher. One thing that I'm curious about, since you were a householder, and then you became quite active in providing and, and support in educating young people, and then you became a monk. Can you tell us a little bit about that transition going from being a householder and to be a full-time monk? Sure, yes. Um, well, uh, the first time I went to Plum Village was in 1999, and I was still a student at Cambridge, uh, so I was 19. And um, I certainly had no intention of becoming a monk. I was just going kind of out of curiosity more than anything else. Um, I think I had a, there was a, something pushing me unconsciously that I didn't realize until later, which is the loss of my mother. Uh, she had died about 18 months before. And I really had no way to deal with that, with that loss. There was nothing, um, I had no practice, no tradition, no ceremony, no no ritual, no no way even just to comprehend it or to understand it. All I had was my kind of scientific uh, training, which I had taken on um, as a young adult, as a teenager. I, I, I was kind of very much into science as a way of understanding the deepest questions. Um, but I found that when faced with that, you know, with with the loss of my mother actually science left me kind of high and dry uh, mm. I didn't really know how to how to handle it um but if you'd asked me you know when i first went to plum village why i was going i wouldn't have i don't think i would have mentioned that because it, it i still i couldn't i was so out of touch with myself and with my feelings um that i wouldn't really even have known you know what was what was really driving me um but uh, I consider myself very fortunate to have found my way to Plum Village uh, um, and to have had the opportunity there to find something very different from what I thought I was looking for. So what I thought I was looking for was a kind of, I guess, like altered states of mind or, you know, something, some kind of proof of something more than the material world i thought i was going to get like you know you know i was going to be taught to levitate or get in touch with other dimensions i don't know what i, I had all kinds of crazy notions um 
but I wanted proof that there was something more than just matter, you know, just particles bouncing off each other. Uh, infinite. So you had an idea back then, even you were a trained scientist. Okay. So you were just curious and then this event that compelled you to go to Plumville. Yeah. There was a kind of question is like, is, is this all there is, you know, or is there, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. More? and I thought, well, if there is something more then maybe this guy called Thignat Han, uh, is the one who would know people say he's enlightened. So somebody just told me like, has this guy, he's enlightened. So I was like, okay, well, let's go and see what he has to say. We shouldn't miss that. You know, we should at least check it out. And, and I was very surprised when I got to Plum Village, you know, I came in the summer retreat, 1999. Um, I was very surprised to find that he taught mainly about very, very, very simple things, um, mostly that I didn't want to hear about. I found it really frustrating. He kept talking about just breathing and bringing your awareness back to your body. Uh, he, caught, he talked about your relationship with your parents and your ancestors and with Mother Earth. And it was very kind of like feet on the ground, very down to earth stuff. And um, I found it really, really annoying. <laughs> And yet, at the same time, like completely irresistible because I couldn't, I kind of couldn't refute it. I, I really tried, you know, I tried to refute pretty much everything he said um, because that was my training, you know, doubt, you know, skepticism, question everything. Um, so I was trying, I was really trying, but I found like every single thing he said, I was like, yeah, that's true. Uh -huh. Yeah, that too. Okay. <laughs> it just went on and on. And at some point, I think um, I started feeling like there's something very special about this man, actually. And I've never, maybe he's the first real human being I, I've ever met. Mm. Just the way he moved, you know, the way he would pour himself a cup of tea, hit the quality of his presence, mm. like, the power of it. It was just such a kind of um fact there was just the fact of him the fact of his presence it was so intense in mm. a way that i felt you know i'd had wonderful teachers at cambridge um, nobel prize winners and fields medalists and all kinds of you know amazing people but they always seemed a little bit distracted or only half there you know compared to him mm. um and they might have been brilliant in their field uh but but it I sort of questioned them as a as a whole human being. You know, they didn't seem to have what he had, which was this this kind of depth of of compassion, of presence, of wisdom. And so I was kind of I was like, okay, so what is this about? Is it real? I tried to. I was still kind of fighting it, you know, at some level. Um, after the end of the, so I stayed four weeks and after the end of the retreat, I went away and the retreat. Before, before you go on, oh, actually, yeah. I, I wanted to, if you can contextualize that a little bit more, because yeah. what you're talked about is, uh, you know, so, so here's some questions throwing away, right? Is it charisma? Is it mm. some, you know, ESP power that he has, right? Yeah. Some guruship that he's trying to interact with his students or you know just contextualize that dimensional um of the the depth of presence that you talk about because mm. i think that would give people a flavor of what could be what's possible 
you know, in a grounded way, but yet in a very present way. Mm -mm. If you can yeah. say a little bit more about that, that'd be amazing. I guess there was something about just the way he did everything, even very simple things. So like in the middle of a talk, he might stop and without hurrying, just really taking all his time, he would, he had a little teapot next to him and he would pick up the teapot and then he would pour the tea into the cup and then put it back down and then pick up the cup with both hands and bring the cup to his lips and drink. And it, it felt like every single thing he was doing was the most important thing in the world. The deepest, the most beautiful act imaginable. And of course, it was just drinking a cup of tea, the, the, about the simplest thing you can do. And yet it was transformed into poetry, into art, into kind of infinite significance, meaning and depth. And I was like, what is that? What? I've never seen anybody drink a cup of tea like that. You know, and it wasn't the performance. Like he wasn't trying to convince anyone of anything or, or it wasn't like, you know how some people kind of um, do things with, it's, it's like you, they, they fake meaning, they fake significance. It wasn't that it was real and it was just and there was and it was seamless because it was like every single thing he did every step he took you know when he opened the door when he put on his jacket you know when he looked left right you know it was just like completely uninterrupted presence mm. and um it's quite striking to suddenly realize that I think I already knew that that you could be more or less present, right? That's something intuitively we all feel. You know, sometimes we're really, really there. Sometimes we're a little bit dispersed and distracted. But you might think that it's kind of like a scale of one to ten, and you hover around, you know, a seven or an eight, and sometimes you go up to a nine. You know, in a moment of particular emotional significance or something very powerful happens, and you get you get really present to what's going on, and you. You're completely focused, or you're in danger. You just you have to focus. Um, or those most beautiful moments in your life—the birth of a child—or you know, the unforgettable things happen, and you're completely present. And then you go back to hovering around, you know. And then sometimes you're way down, two or three. You didn't sleep well, you know. You, you're you're multitasking, distracted, or that. But suddenly meeting Thai, Thai just means teacher in Vietnamese. So we just refer to him as, as Thai. It's a kind of nice, it's, it's, a, it's a term of respect, but it's quite like um, endearing. I don't know, it's, it's quite a, like a, a gentle term of respect. Um, so meeting him and seeing him speak and move and be, I suddenly realized that this that scale didn't just go to 10, right? Mm. It went, and not just to 100, but it was just like suddenly, instead of 1 to 10, it was 1 to infinite. Wow. Yeah. It felt like 
oh my goodness i i didn't even realize i was just like scratching the surface of mm. present what it means to really be here now mm. there was this kind of infiniteness to it so i don't know if you know like in mathematics there's this concept of an asymptote you know when a when mm. a curve, you know reaches uh uh, it, it's sort of reaching a, a certain limit and uh, mm -hmm. never it never gets there it just gets mm -hmm. closer and closer but it has to go you have to go infinitely far and you know the further you go along the curve the closer it gets the smaller the distance with that limit gets but it mm -hmm. never reaches it. it just so you have so it goes it's infinite it can get infinitely close and it felt like that it felt like maybe there's something in the nature of the present moment that you can you can just keep deepening into the present moment. You can mm. keep concentrating your being, your energy, your awareness, your consciousness into this slice of now. And the more you do that, the more real you become, the less like a ghost you feel and the less like a ghost the things in your life are. Like, you know, you know what it's like when you, when you drink a coffee or a tea or even a water or whatever it is, and, and you drink it, you kind of knock it back, and then two minutes later, you can't even remember what it tasted like, or even or if you drank it or not, you know? And most of our life goes by like that, that we're not really fully aware of the wonder of simple things. Like, so you just took a sip of water or, or something, and... Uh, it would be interesting to maybe, and for the listeners, you can try this at home. The next time you take a little sip of tea or coffee or water, try to really actually like turn on all the sensitivity of your tongue and your mouth to feel the magic of just a liquid substance. It's just, it's liquid. I mean, liquid is amazing. Like it coats everything, coats the tongue. You can feel it. It's very sensuous. And, and then like you can remember that that drop of that little mouthful of water is actually the condensation of a cloud, mm. a giant cloud that was floating in the sky, you know, a few weeks or months ago before it fell as rain into a reservoir, into a stream and was, you know, uh, went through whatever process it had to go through to get to you to come out of the tap for you to drink it. But when you drink it, you can kind of feel like, wow, this connects me to the clouds. This connects me to the whole water cycle and even beyond. I mean, this the water that we drink is ancient. It's, uh, it's, it's always been water. Like most of it is actually from before, um, before the, 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 the kind of create the formation of planet Earth. It comes from asteroids way out in the rim of the solar system that bombarded the the earth, the young earth, you know, so it's like more than 4 billion years old. And it's like, we just drink it poof, as though it's nothing. So anyway, this is just an example, but to say that Tai did everything like that with this full presence and sitting near him, I sometimes say it, it felt like sitting near a furnace. Mm. There's something, something. These kind of waves of energies coming off him, and you would, in the, you know, you sit near him, and you'd get really clear. You suddenly become aware of all these kind of background mental processes, 
that you, you know maybe you weren't aware of a moment ago and you suddenly think wow i'm so mindful i'm really meditating and then it goes away and then it's like oh hang on that wasn't me <laughs> was like, you were in the field you were it wasn't you yeah it was him yeah so he gives you a taste but then mm. you have to figure out how to how to recreate that you know how to get back to that place how to train it because it's it's daily training mm. uh, and everything can be trained and i think that that was the that was the real realization for me that there was this capacity this muscle this kind of um potential that i had of, of just how aware i could be of anything and i had never trained it but but now suddenly i could train it and he was giving me the way to do that mm. and i suddenly realized like wow everything else is built on that mm -hmm. like whatever else i do it has to start with whether or not i'm aware of it <laughs> and mm -hmm. like degree i'm aware and to what degree i can focus that awareness and maintain it in a steady way uninterrupted mm -hmm. uh, and i suddenly realized like all my studies in music mathematics and science and you know anything depended on the quality and the clarity of that awareness and yet nothing in my education had given me a way to to cultivate that that awareness so i suddenly thought like huh this, this is the foundation. This is this has to come first. Like whatever else I'm going to do, I have to do this. Like I have mm. to get down, you know. And then maybe I can, you know, turn my attention to other things. And you know, coming back to your original question, like from from a householder's life to a monastic life, that that took several years um, because I so I went to Plumbridge the first time when I was 19. Changed my life. It got me in touch with my grief. It helped me to handle that. So I was going, you know, trying to thinking about getting like altered mental states and, you know, kind of crazy awareness of parallel universes. I don't know what I thought I was going to do, but what I came away with was actually a way to handle my, you know, to be with and to feel my grief and my sorrow without mm. drowning. Mm. And my mother and with her presence still very much alive in me. Um, and so I, and it really changed my life. It really turned my life around. Um, and, and so I came back at least twice a year, every year after that for, for retreats. Um, but I was in a, I was in a relationship. Um, uh, so my girlfriend, at f the very first time I came back from Plum Village, um, we had the biggest fight of our lives. Uh, and she was very kind of like skeptical because I'd changed a lot. Suddenly I just declared I was vegetarian. I didn't drink wine anymore. You know, I was kind of like, I was pretty full of it. Uh, maybe a little bit overconfident as well, thinking I had figured it all out. Whereas in fact, I hadn't really. Were you imposing your thoughts on her? Yeah. Yeah, I was like, do this and listen, you know, just, you know, do this, do that. Mm -hmm. I thought I had it all figured out. So I was very overconfident and a little bit arrogant. And she was, you know, she's a very, very <laughs> intelligent and sensitive person. Um, and yeah, she wasn't having any of that. So it took a while, maybe like two years, I think. And I kept, I just kept going back. Um, maybe after two or three years 
she noticed, you know, she really started to see, okay, that he's changed. You know, there are some, like he's listening now, he can listen in a different way. Um, maybe he's taking better care of himself. Um, maybe the quality of his love is, is kind of improving. Um, and she was like, and I think, you know, we went to see a talk by Tai in London when he came to London, um, probably in 2001. And she read about one of his books and gradually she was like, okay, fine, I'll go, I'll go see. So she went, she had her experience of Plum Village. Luckily, she went on her own. So it wasn't mediated by me. She had her own experience. She made friends with the nuns. She had an amazing time. Uh, and then after that, it was like, okay, that's it. We will always go and we'll go together and we would have go for retreats every year together. But still no thought of monastic life. Um, because we had this amazing relationship. And in fact, with the practice of Plum Village, it got better and better. Like we were more and more in love. We were more and more kind of able to understand each other, able to understand each other's deepest aspirations, able to support each other, maybe uh, gradually like, cause each other to suffer less. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's very painful, you know, that when you cause the one you love to, to suffer. Um, mm that's not really part of the plan. And yet, you know, we do. So, so that was, it was beautiful that we were kind of learning how not to do that. And yeah, and we had a wonderful life. I mean, she was a producer at the BBC. I was a composer in London. And, and yet every time we went for a retreat, we kind of felt like after three weeks, we're like, okay, this is it. Now it's getting really deep. We're really starting to see, you know, into the roots of things and starting to understand ourselves. But it's not long enough. We want to come back for longer. Mm. We made a commitment in 2004. Mm. And we said within one year, we made this like solemn vow to each other. Within a year, we will come back and spend at least three months in Plum Village. We'll do a, a three-month retreat, which is the traditional uh, rains, rainy season retreat. Mm. Um, that usually it's just for monastics, but in Plum Village, the lay people can can join that three month retreat. And we're like, that's what we need. We want to go deep, three months. So we arranged everything, um, and on the last day of the year, you know, since we'd made our promise, we managed to finally leave London. It was very difficult, you know, to get a sabbatical to arrange everything, but we did. Went to Plum Village. Ended up staying there seven months because three months. Once three months had gone by, it wasn't enough. We were like called London, <laughs> quit the BBC, and they were like, you know, you don't have to quit. You don't have to quit. Like your job will be here when you get back. We'll promote you, you know. And um, I had commissions as a composer, and but we were just like, no, no, this is more important. So after seven months, we bought a little house in the French countryside, not far from Plum Village. Mm. And we were like, okay, that's it. Never going back to London. And uh, this practice has to be at the center of our lives. Maybe we'll create a lay, a, you know, a lay practice center, practice center for, for lay people, run by lay people. Um, it, it's going to be all about this practice of meditation. Um, but still, the thought of monastic life just never came up, never occurred to us uh, until suddenly it did. And that's like that. Pretty much a little bit of a miracle. Mm. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could go into the whole story of that, but it's maybe not the most relevant thing. But anyway, it happened more or less simultaneously that we, that we both realized that 
there was that possibility um, and we were really being called to it suddenly quite strongly and and it was this sense that our you know you could talk about aspiration and talk about like what your deepest desire like your deepest dream suddenly it felt like it didn't it didn't fit in the householder's life anymore it was the householders i felt too narrow and mm. controlling and we just realized like if we have a family then probably like 80 percent of our energy is going to go towards sustaining uh that family and and looking after our children and each other and our careers and 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 that's beautiful like that's a, that is a sacrament that, that it's absolutely beautiful beautiful path there's nothing wrong with it mm -hmm. um, but it just felt like we wanted to give all of our energy to to this path of of understanding and service um and when i say service i mean like knowing the amount of suffering in the world there's just this this desire that comes up from deep inside to find some way to alleviate it um, in oneself and in the world. Uh, and, and that was drawing us very, very powerfully. And we felt like, well, th th there was a promise we'd made to each other, you know, so we'd, we'd been together, I guess, eight years, eight or nine years by that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had made a uh, promise to each other that whenever we had a decision to take, we'd always do the craziest thing. So if we had to choose... Warrior spirit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> always going to be the crazy thing. And so when that decision came up, it was like lay life, monastic life. It was obvious, like, which one was crazy. Um, and so we were kind of... I mean, within the first... From the first time we talked about it, we talked, you know, we had like a probably five hour long conversation um but we kind of already knew we were going to do it mm. even in that first conversation um yeah and so we both ordained so she's a she's a nun uh here in Plum village and oh no kidding yeah. <laughs> oh <my Yeah>. God. <laughs> how cool is that wow yeah. what a story so and i want to ask you go some ahead nuanced in that thing because the way you portray it it didn't occur to me as there any inner resistance that you're dealing with or any kind of courage you need to muster to lean force this it seemed very naturalistic was am i projecting too much or, or, or was there you know some kind of grief you need to let go of your you know material life and you need to muster the courage and so forth anything like that it was absolutely terrifying it was absolutely terrifying and um you know the the the, the material stuff the house the car the money this stuff, it didn't that wasn't important that didn't matter it was easy in fact it was a relief to let go of all of that mm. but to let go of our relationship mm. uh, you know our intimacy our connection um and just like our daily life together just the amount of time mm. we'd be together just to talk and to to dream together that was unbelievably difficult mm. uh, it was like uh and it really made us hesitate you know because we were thinking like are we crazy is this just completely insane to do this and of course lots of people told us we were insane <laughs> our families were not happy most of our friends were really really upset as well 
Um, and uh, and it, it is really hard. It's really hard for the families um, to understand. And it's hard. It was hard for my friends. I realized, and I, I, you know, there's things I regret, you know, because, well, it's not exactly regret because I don't regret the decision I took, but I, but it's like I recognized the pain that I caused by that decision and the pain that I caused myself and, and my friends and my family. And that's just, it's, it's really, really hard. I think at the time I tried to, I remember conversations with my friends and they said, but we'll never see you, you know? And I was like, no, 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 but you know, we'll still be really connected and you know, I still love you and, and you know, we'll, we'll talk and, and we'll stay in touch and we'll write letters. And the truth is not really. Uh, they were right. I was wrong. Um, and I, I kind of feel, I feel that pain. I feel the pain I caused them. They said, well, you're not going to be in our lives. You know, you're not going to be there for, you know, the important stuff. You're not going to be there, you know, when our children are born, you're not going to be there when we get married, when we have loss and, you know, and I'm like, no, 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 I'll still be there. I'll be in touch. You know, the truth is it's really hard. Um, and, you know, maybe some of those friends I'm still closely in touch with them. You know, one has even moved to Plum Village to, to live. In <laughs> you were the first. <laughs> yeah, you know, and then, so actually I kind of think, you know, we thought quite naively, maybe more of them would, would come and, and live nearby, not to be monastics, but just to kind of form a community. Mm -hmm. we, we already had that dream together as a group of friends. Mm. But, you know, that was, it's, it's happened only partly <laughs> less than we less than we thought and it took a lot longer um mm. so yeah just acknowledging that acknowledging like my father it was desperately painful for him um he was very invested in you know uh i think he saw us having children he mm. saw my future as a composer mm. uh, it was very important to him like how much he had sacrificed you know to to mm. to give me that freedom um to support me in the kind of education that I had, driving me to music lessons every mm. weekend, using his spare time, you know, to drive me to these courses and, you know, just the amount of energy and love he put into that. Um, I think he, for him, it was very painful and he felt it as a rejection of him and mm. values and, 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 you know, the path that he saw for me. Mm. Um, but I, yeah, it's it's so it's very hard. Like I and I sometimes think that about decisions in general. Like a decision is not a decision unless it's between two things um, that you and you want them both. Mm -hmm. It's only a decision if you want both things. Mm -hmm. If you only want one of them, well, then it's not a decision. It's automatic. You just <laughs> you go with the thing that you want to do. But the problem here was that we wanted both. Like we, mm. our life together as a couple was so beautiful, um, and and so kind of uh, perfect in, in in so many ways that of course we wanted to continue that. Mm. Yet there was this other desire, and in the end, it was even stronger. And partly it was the sense that, at least for me, you know. This person I was with, um, 
I felt like I don't get to keep her for myself. Mm. You know, she could help so many people with, and her love could extend to so many people. And, you know, if it's, if it's tightly bound in this kind of magnetic, you know, dyad relationship, and then maybe extending to a family, it's kind of like, it's not, it's not achieving what it could in the world, like mm -hmm. the power of her being of her presence and what she can offer, you know, and I, it, it, it was kind of a bet in a sense. It was like, I think I need to kind of give her to the world um, mm. because of what she can do. And that was incredibly painful. Um, but I have to say like last year when we were on the stage at, the, at TED in Edinburgh and she gave mm. a talk for our community, I really had the feeling like, okay, 15 years later, yeah, we were right. You know, this is like, she is doing, she's doing it and it's amazing. This is just the beginning. Um, so you can see her TED Talks is the true dedication on uh, on ted and 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 many many other things on youtube and and so on and so forth but she's yeah she's just an amazing powerful person who's helping i don't know how many thousands of people around the world um mm. yeah so, so let me just do a quick call back because you had talked about the quality of presence your teacher Thich Nhat han had and anyone watching your talks, your Dharma talks, would get a sense of that. I got a sense of that. The quality of presence, you know, the you know little seeds that you plant in every sentence that you make. So I just want to do a callback to that, so that you too, my friend, is uh, you know reaping the benefits of contributing, you know, uh, to thousands, if not mm. hundreds of thousands of people. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean. For me, it's all uh, very much work in progress. Mm -hmm. uh, I consider myself, uh, you know, a young monk. I've been a monk for getting on for 15 years. And um, I uh, I think it's just, we're just getting started, you know. Mm -hmm. There's much more uh, to develop and to train mm -hmm. and have an uh, inside. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's, I, I feel very excited about that. You know, I, I, I've, I've Feel like I always wanted a life in which I would never stop learning. I, I think from a very early age, I that was a kind of fundamental thing for me. That whatever path I had, it would be one in which I could, it went one which I would never retire, and always continue to grow and and to learn. Um, and I feel like this path, the monastic path, really is that. It allows for that. I don't have to worry about money. I don't have to worry about being, you know, making a reputation for myself or, you know, having a career or um, I don't have to worry about any of those things. I am, I just have to take care of my daily practice and, uh, and, and make sure I'm, you know, I'm sticking, staying true to the path. Um, and it's endless. Mm -hmm. It's not, maybe not even one life, but life after life. That's the mm -hmm. vow we take when we become monastic. It's like, uh, oh, no kidding. Life after life. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. I mm -hmm. thought it's you sign up for this lifetime and next life you get to swap out a different identity. That's fascinating. 
I don't think I would want to. You know, it's like, <laughs> this path. It's just this is it. This mm. is it. The way to live. Asymptote, right? You just lifetime after lifetime keep going yep. towards the infinite. Mm -hmm. So, I want to do another callback to what you said earlier on Noble Warrior. Mm. Um, we talk about commitment and sacrifice. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you're truly committed to until you need to make certain sacrifice of two things you both want or multiple things you want. Exactly. Because that's a great revelation to what you truly value. And it's obvious that you sacrifice intimacy, relationships with family and friends and this material life in the pursuit of this spiritual path that you're on. So thank you for that. Mm. And, and I'm also quite fascinated with your story as well, because in my own spiritual journey to my journey, my path is more of an ayahuasca path. Mm -hmm. And, and this beautiful medicine showing me ways, showing me truth that I hadn't thought about before, mm. um, you know, having encountered it. And as such, more and more, I'm, I'm uh, being called to go to the jungle, actually sit with the medicine with, you know, for an extended period of time. And okay. I have similar concerns about, okay, what about my career and <laughs> relationships and all these right. things. So it's actually quite poignant that you articulated this. Um, by no means I have a clear answer yet. I don't think I will do <laughs> the monastic life quite yet. It's not there yet, but, but, but the seed is growing right? This, this, this yearning for a deeper spiritual connection to, and an understanding of truth mm -hmm. and also being holy who I am. And as you said, move, talk with that full consciousness, no matter what I do, it's something that I do desire. So I appreciate your story. Oh, beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I would say go for it, but <laughs> beware, beware. Uh, well, one thing that we do have in common is our love for learning. That I mean, that's ultimately what brought us together through Rome research, yes. through, um, you know, the understanding of the world, the universe. Now that I, you know, consume more of your content mm. to know the depth of your mind, your, 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 your presence, also your understanding. But before we go there, I do want to ask you this question. Knowing what you know today, mm. I think for especially the seeker types, they have a romantic notion of what's it like to be a monk, mm. right? You live on top of the mountain, you just study your scriptures and you do your daily meditation. And then, as you said, you don't need to worry about material needs and success and all these burdensome responsibilities. Mm. What are some of the things that you, you know today? Like, well, you know, is just different kind of, I won't say burden, but responsibility, right? Yeah. Different kind of cost. Mm. It's just different. So are there things that you wish you had known, you know, before you joined uh, and then lived the monastic life? Good question. Well, I, you know, I think I came in pretty much with my eyes open because I'd been around the community long enough and I'd seen monastics leave, right? Because not everybody sticks at it, you know, and I'd seen some people I really admired and, and, and thought, you know, would be monastics for their whole lives. I'd see them go back and go back to lay life and maybe have families and so on. And so I kind of knew 
A, it's not easy. It's clearly not easy because there are some very, very smart, you know, really inspiring, you know, powerful people who, in a sense, didn't make it. You know, well, it's not to make it or not make it. They, you know, they chose a different path, and which is, and they're also doing wonderful things. So it's not a defeat, but it's kind of like if if I want to do this for, for my whole life, I have to realize that. You know, clearly, it's not going to be it's not going to be easy. There are going to be moments of 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 challenge, moments of doubt. So I knew that. Um, you know, I knew that the community that I was going to kind of live in um, was very, very beautiful, very, very harmonious, like a really kind of enlightened community, and yet that there were also issues. You know, things that um, maybe were not in accord with my way of seeing the world, my way of understanding things, my priorities. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I knew that it's not, it's not a perfect community, but, I, but I, I had really, you know, received good advice from one of my elder sisters, Sister Gina, who said, well, you know, we're not looking for a perfect community. We're just looking for a, a place where we get enough reminders to come to keep coming back to the practice and we have enough support to um to use the tools that we are offered to cut through our afflictions and if we're doing that then the community is good enough it doesn't need to be perfect it just needs to be a place where there are tools that you can apply and you get enough reminders to apply them that you actually do it to cut through your afflictions mm. uh, and, and, and so that was my kind of criterion, you know, it's like, okay, if that's happening and if I can maintain that, then it's, it's good enough. Um, and so, yeah, to come back to your question, um, it's, what was your question? What, what were the challenges? Yeah, what's, you know, knowing what you know today, you had probably some romantic notion of what's it like right. to be a monk. Right. And in but in actual practice, you're like, yeah. oh, I didn't know I had to do this thing forever yeah. and ever. And it's part yeah. of being a monk, right? The lifestyle of being a monk. Yeah. Well, I so, wish I had known this. You know, let me right. make sure to tell the you know people who think about this. Yeah. Hey, you, this is awesome, but you, you got to pay this price, this cost. Yeah. yeah. And day out. So I think you're correct that many people have those romantic notions about what it is to be a monk. I think I didn't have so many because I'd been around long enough to, to see, you know, enough. Um, but I kind of knew what I was getting into. So one thing is there are different kinds of monastic life as well. So oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Huh. Yeah, there are many different kinds of monastic life. So in the, also true in the Christian tradition, there's contemplative monastics and there's active monastics, you know, who are mm. engaged in, in service. And so in the plumbative tradition, you know, I knew that I was ordaining into a path, a, a, a tradition um, which in, which is known as engaged Buddhism. Mm. So that basically means like if you want a quiet life, this is not the community for you. Like if you think you want to go and sit in a cave for the rest of your life and, and, and meditate, this isn't it. That's not what happens here. What happens here is that we offer retreats for mm for anybody who wants to come and learn the mm. art of living in daily life. And mm. 
concretely, what that means is that we offer those retreats, we organize those retreats, we cook for those retreats, we maintain the grounds for those retreats, we have to renovate the buildings to host those retreats, we have to build websites and you know have a run a registration office and go shopping and buy food and you know it, it's like it's a massive operation because we're receiving tens of thousands of people a year mm -hmm. uh, it's a big thing and then we go you know maybe six months of the year we go on tour getting invited to different countries to to teach and to offer retreats here and there so it's very very active life it's not you know sitting quietly on top of a mountain uh and in silence having said that you know built into the fabric of our monastic life there is a lot of silence and there is a lot of contemplation it's just woven into this kind of fabric of of engaged action um so the two really go together contemplation and action hand in hand um and so I was pretty much, I was okay with that. Um, I think uh, some people are not, you know, some people are like, whoa, hang on, this is too much, too many people, too many retreats. I just want to, you know, sit in my room and, 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 and contemplate. And so quite often they end up leaving, you know, if, if that's what they're looking for, this is not, this is not that, you know, this is not that path. Um, I guess, yeah, I have been, it's been surprising in a sense to find myself um, quite quickly having to be amongst a group of monastics that are really sort of having to take responsibility for the whole, you know, for the community. Um, luckily, there's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's many of us and, you know, we've got a great team. Um, but uh, but I think yeah that came maybe sooner than I than I expected um, and and there is some aspect of yeah of responsibility and a kind of burden with that it's quite it's hard suddenly having to figure out you know fundraising uh, to repair these broken down farm buildings in the south of France um, in order to be able to receive people uh, for retreats. And so so on that note, let me ask you a quick question. Because you had alluded to earlier, hey, I don't have any worldly responsibility for money and all these right. things, a reputation. Yeah, but now it's transmuted to money for the whole institute, yeah. <laughs> reputation for the whole institute, teaching for the whole institute. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how does it transmute? Because it, yeah. it sounds the same in terms of the responsibilities, yeah. but the experience is different, I'm assuming. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So the nice thing is that, um, you know, like no matter how it's, it's like something the abbot, uh, we have a wonderful abbot called Brother Fapu, which means Dharma friend. Uh, and he sometimes says, it's like, no matter how good a talk you give, you know, no, you know, no, no matter how many people like it on YouTube or, or, or whatever, um, you still get the same uh, pocket money every month, you know, because we have a little pocket money. <laughs> we, we don't have no money. We have some money, but. Um, oh, okay individually it, yeah so it's not oh, a lot okay okay 40, 40 euros per month okay so you can imagine you know these days that doesn't go very far uh, and uh, it's spent on razor blades and shampoo or you know so uh, toothpaste you know it's like uh, it, or you know buying little gifts for 
for, for our friends or something. Um, so, uh, yeah, and it doesn't matter whether you're the abbot, whether you're a senior Dharma teacher or whatever, you still just get 40 euros a month. And there's something uh -huh. really, really beautiful about that because we're not, you know, we're not special uh, mm -hmm. because we can give a good talk. You know, we're no more important than, you know, the brothers who are uh, raking the leaves in the garden, you know, and in fact, we may be raking the leaves in the garden the next day as well, you know, so, so it's mm -hmm. very, uh, we really, we rotate through all the different responsibilities in the monastery and that keeps us humble, um, mm. which is really, really healthy. And, you know, we have sometimes very high profile events, you know, you get invited here and there to the, you know, to the COP in Glasgow, to TED, to, you know, speak with CEOs and, 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 and the danger is that can go to your head and you start to think that you're special or important. But we have lots and lots of checks and balances in place in our monastic life. So, you know, you come back into the monastic residence and if you've, if you've kind of nourished that pride a little bit, you know, your brothers will just chop you to pieces. You know, mm. no, just, okay, so do you mind going into details? Okay, yeah. let's not put anyone's head uh, names in the conversation. Let's say me. Yeah, I'm part of the thing. I did a TED Talk. You got a million views, whatever the thing. I came back. A lot of self-importance. Look how many you know views and in you know, prestige I'm bringing to the village. How would you get me to <laughs> to humble probably, me? I'd probably just tease you. Uh huh. You know, it's it's very gentle often, but it's it's mm -hmm. very like you know. Uh, I remember. Okay, so I'll give you a story. Like one time, I was a as I was a novice monk. So I'd been ordained a couple of years, but I was kind of like. Um, called upon quite quickly to to facilitate circle uh, sharing groups and and this kind of thing because I had some experience already as a lay practitioner so and there was just a need like they needed people to help out so I went on this tour to Malaysia uh, with my teacher and and about probably thirty or forty monks most most of whom and probably all of whom were much much more senior than me and I remember um, we had this retreat in a big resort and I came back to my room after the, uh, we call it Dharma sharing, but it's like circle sharing time where we have a group of about 20 people. And I came back in and I, you know, I was, I was staying, sharing a room with my mentor and I was like, wow, yeah, you know, the Dharma sharing was so amazing. Like so many people cried and, you know, they were really moved and they went really deep and, and they were like, huh? And he, he was like, huh, huh, okay. You're counting, huh? Counting. <laughs> Interesting. You think that's what it's about? You think the more people cry, the better you are? You think you did that? <laughs> mm. Merciless. I was like, oh, mm. okay, I guess not. <laughs> mm. I love it. Oh, yeah. man. That was the, yeah, the, the Zen sword waiting for me behind the door. <laughs> I got in, right? <laughs> uh, now go clean the toilet. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. Um, okay, so would you say sort of the horizon right obviously you don't you never get to the horizon it's an asymptote would you say this engaged style of buddhism the goal is to awaken people in the basically in the more the merrier would you say giving people tools and the environment to do that like what would you say is the intention of this mm. you know very active very orchestrated 
you know big operation to um, of, of practicing um, Buddhism. Yeah, I guess there is um, the uh, the wish to kind of seed a collective awakening, mm -hmm. partly because our survival as a species may well depend on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it seems like our way of thinking our way of seeing the world, our way of understanding ourselves um, and our, our way of understanding the world has produced this kind of, um, you know, extractive consumerist capitalist society that we are enmeshed in and which is eating the planet, you know, and, mm -hmm. and rapidly destroying it, rapidly mm, maybe reducing the uh, life carrying capacity of this planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so if it's our way of thinking and our way of seeing that has contributed to this state of affairs, then maybe we should change our way of thinking, our way of seeing our, our view about what we are, what the world is, what our relationship is with the world. And, you know, then you have the question, well, how, like, mm -hmm. what would that look like? What would it mean to change from the view of ourselves as individuals, for example, that are basically in competition with each other for resources, for reputation, mm -hmm. for fame, for money, for sex, for, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But kind of currently the way things are, right? You know, if, if I, you know, I look back at my education, Every single exam I took, every time I was tested, I was tested alone. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, I was tested as me, as this notion of a separate person that was me. I was never tested in my capacity to collaborate. Mm -hmm. Have you ever taken an exam as a team? No. It doesn't happen. You know, you go through mm -hmm. whole school and college. Um, uh, and, if, and you go to a PhD maybe, and you're always alone. And then after that, once you actually have to start working, you have to collaborate, but you don't know how. Mm -hmm. You've never been trained to do that. So we're a very individualistic society and we're trained to have very individualistic dreams. Um, mm -hmm. There's constantly competition. And, and it's even the culture in which competition is kind of celebrated as the way to to generate innovation right i mean com companies are supposed to compete with each other because the idea is that that will drive innovation that will make them better that will make them more efficient mm -hmm. you know combative judicial system in, in which you know two parties have to basically fight it out to determine what is the truth and it's thought it seems to be that we think that fighting is a way to to, to discover the truth Mm -hmm. I maybe question that. I was like, well, maybe it's not the best way, you know, to to find out what's true and what's not true. Maybe that's not the best way to tap into our deepest creativity and capacity for innovation. Um, so, so that's all at the level of view. So then, if you say, well, okay, well, how do we change our view? Maybe we already have a little intuition, a little sense that, in some way, we are interconnected. You know, we have these terms floating around, my teacher coined this term, into being. You know, so there's no, the question is not to be or not to be, right? Because there's no such thing as to be a separate entity, separately existent. You can only ever interbe with everything else, with the 
trees that provide the oxygen with the whole planet and the sun that and time and space that you know provides food and you know a, a universe that we can live in and each other you know the exchange of ideas and emotions and we are each other we're not we're not as separate as we as we think and that's starting to disseminate into our culture so there's more of an understanding of our interconnectivity but how do you really like make that into a cultural transformation so there's a there's a big enough shift a big enough awakening to our interdependence with with the earth with the cosmos to the preciousness the sacredness of of everything um and and that i believe and like if if we if we could have that level of understanding of our of our interconnection with everything then we would treat everything with a lot more reverence a lot more kindness a lot more compassion and love and we wouldn't do as much harm we wouldn't you know we wouldn't be destroying the the place you know we wouldn't be wrecking our our, our one precious planet that we can live on um so then the question is well if you're going to do that if you're going to if so if that's true if 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 our view matters right which i i believe it does but that's you can take that as a hypothesis right let's say that's the hypothesis that our view if we could change it to this more interdependent view would be productive of a different kind of society that would do less harm you, all of that is a theory right I, I i happen to think it's a good one but you can take it or leave it you know or you can test it if you want um but then the question like if you say okay well maybe that's that's a good theory and want to try it out then the question is well how how do you change view uh, at a collective level like what is that what and 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 who knows how to do that right so i think like if you want to learn basketball you go to the nba you know you go to the pros you you, you find the best people the best basketball players and you ask them you know how they do what they do but if you want to learn how to change your mind right how to change your way of thinking how you, how to change your view then you have to look like across all the cultures on the planet and through all of human history, where has this been a priority? In which traditions, which traditions have really invested themselves in understanding how our views are formed and how they can be changed? And I believe like, Buddhism is, is definitely one of those uh, very, very important lineages that have invested you know, thousands of years and practice, uh, of practice and contemplation in, in figuring out how to do this. Um, and of course, there are other traditions. It's not to say it's the only one, but it's 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 an important one and a really really good one. And I think we have the great privilege of, of living in an age where um, we can access pretty much any one of the world's ancient traditions, um, and those ancient traditions are merging with you know with science, with um, you know Western technological civilization, not even Western anymore, but you know industrial revolution started in, in, in Europe, but uh, it's now a very much global phenomenon. Um, but, it, you know, technological civilization is merging um, with, with this, potentially could merge with this ancient, um, kind of the inner wisdom traditions that have, that have, that have existed. Mm. I think I... very exciting. I'm, yeah, I agree with everything that you said. 
Um, I'm a seeker, if it's not obvious to you by now. I've done dabble and research and explore all kinds of different modalities. And I really love the rigor of Buddhism thinking and, and um, the, 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 yeah, the, the intellectual rigor, the logical conclusion from one thing leading to another. And I, the mechanics of it all, I did Vipassana and then, you know, I learned a lot about these um, ideas and principles from that. And as you said, I tried to use my scientific mind to refute those points, but every point, you know, makes sense. So I continue to practice those things today. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I really appreciate is this intersection between lineage, tradition, timeless wisdom to technology mm. that the Plum Village is embracing. Yeah. Because most, and I used, let's say, indigenous leaders of the Amazon, mm. you know, they liked tradition, timeless wisdom, and everything, or traditions, but they really don't like <laughs> uh, innovation so much. Mm. Mm. Whereas, I believe that the solution lies in the middle. Yes, embrace traditions, timeless wisdom, and lineage, but also see what the tools that there are and then use it to forward the mission in a way that's, you know, uh, conducive to what, for, for the good of all, right? So I really appreciate yeah. how you are able to do that. Can you share with us a little bit about how either the Institute or how you think about you know, striking a good harmony between tradition and then also cutting edge technology. A bit. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, I really have my teacher to thank for that. Um, the way he kind of set up this very fine tuning um, between being probably one of the most progressive people I've ever encountered in my life and yet also being the holder of this ancient tradition and in the sense being more conservative than the most conservative um, people in, in Buddhism, maybe in Vietnam, you know, people kind of can't, they can't figure out, like, is he, is he radical? Is he progressive or is he ultra conservative and super traditional? Because in fact, it's like, he said, well, even Vietnamese Buddhism, um, it, it needs to be renewed, but it needs to be renewed because it's strayed from the original teachings of the Buddha. So the renewal is actually a return to the source. Um, so it's kind of like, you're not, you're not being traditional enough. <laughs> you need to get back to the original teachings of the Buddhism of, of, of the Buddha, um, to, to really like be true to the tradition. And yet at the same time, you need to be able to stay completely open and, and continue to learn and to grow because as soon as, you stop learning, well, basically you're stuck, you're, you're, you're dead. Like if a tree doesn't grow, right, it's a dead tree, mm -hmm. right? So if a tradition isn't growing, it's a dead tradition. So but, but how, okay, so I, I agree and awesome, thank you. But what you're saying right now for anyone listening, even I'm listening, you're saying, oh, go left and go right at the same time. I'm like, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know what to do. So how do you do that how do you stay true to the tradition how do you also continue to learn yeah so this is a good question i have this i have this image of um of an ancient plum tree 
you know sometimes uh you graft uh, uh you know uh, plum trees onto old rootstock mm-hmm. and so the roots are very ancient very strong very deep and yet every spring there's new flowers you know there's new mm-hmm. blocks there's fresh leaves mm-hmm. that the, the the ancient and the new can completely go together you know and uh, and i feel like tai really embodied that that he had this this freshness like he always wanted to be in touch with the beginners you know with the with little children in the summer retreat you know he would ask them to come and sit close during the talks and he would give you know the first part of every talk would be for the children mm. they were totally unimpeded by you know preconceived notions of what is and or isn't true or what is or isn't buddhism you know they had no no filters and no kind of uh, uh they're totally undogmatic right because they don't know anything mm-hmm. they're completely open and he was really nourished by that and, and I, th- I think he really wanted to maintain that that spirit uh, and i do too I, it's it's kind of the sense that buddhism is profoundly anti-dogmatic mm-hmm. that truth is found in life right not in a book mm. right? whatever you hold on to now that you believe to be the truth ultimately at some point you have to let go of it if you want mm. to touch a higher truth right you have to be able to let go of that which you presently believe to be true and so what that means is you have to be able to examine everything that you think is true now and already see that one day you will let go of it and transcend it so that means that it's whatever you think is true isn't really true. It's not the final truth. Maybe there is no final truth. And, and, and yet, you know, it doesn't mean sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater or saying you have to renew everything, change everything, you know, throw away all the ancient wisdom because you have to be humble and you have to say, well, you know, I am also a beginner on this path. And, you know, maybe there's, 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 wisdom here that I don't fully understand. And before I throw away this traditional practice or this traditional understanding or way of explaining things, you know, let me actually work with it. Let me actually see, do I, you know, have I let it in enough? Have I understood it enough? Um, and so, yeah, it's that kind of spirit of, of humility, but also of um, kind of scientific inquiry a readiness to 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 let go of you know something that you believe to be true in order to take another step on on the path and really the sense is that whatever can be said right whatever can be written down is always going to be imperfect like a partial representation of the nature of reality and the nature of your own insight and understanding right the map is not the territory and all language uh, is map you know it is by its very nature uh, a, a compression of what it is that you know language points to something which is life you know which is our own consciousness our own experience of the wonder of everything but it isn't it isn't the thing that it points to mm-hmm. um, and so it's kind of necessarily wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> weird because we spend so much time talking and writing things down and, and you know and try to like codify things and say precisely what we what we believe and what we understand um mm. and yet 
in this in this tradition of meditation, we know that we even have to leave language behind. Mm -hmm. And ideally, you leave it behind every time you you enter into meditation. Right? That, that's the, the challenge is to be able to leave behind the constant stream of blah, 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 narrating and describing your own experience to yourself in order to be able to touch experience itself directly with no linguistic intermediary, no reduction, mm -hmm. you know, into language. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that, that, you know, when you have that experience of, of being able to enter complete silence, you know, the mental chatter stops and you see how insufficient it is to describe what's really going on. You know, what's really, what this is really all about. Um, once you see how insufficient it is, and once you have that experience many times, it, it makes you very um, cautious about saying anything with any certainty, you know, mm -hmm. saying anything as being like, this is it, this is completely, definitely, absolutely true, um, because you know that it can't be. Um, and so that gives you a kind of freedom from thinking that you have the final answer, which then gives you space to continue learning. And at the same time, you have, you know, because you see that to open your mouth and say stuff may from time to time actually be helpful for some people, um, out of compassion, ideally, you do speak, you try your best skillfully to use words to communicate, you know, something that you've touched in meditation because you think it might actually help and because it, it and because you've been helped, like I've been helped by my teacher very skillfully deciding to, you know, enter the thicket, you know, the labyrinth of using words. Um, he actually did it skillfully enough that he could he could help me touch something that's beyond words. And the Buddha did the same thing. Like when you go and read the sutras, it's all words. And yet what he's pointing at is something beyond the words. And he did it skillfully enough that I think, okay, maybe I should try to do the same, but because I'm so inexperienced, I'm going to rely more on what they did. Mm -hmm. right? so I will reference the sutras and I will reference, you know, my teachers interpretation of those sutras or commentary on those sutras because I know like I'm not there yet you know I don't have that wisdom mm. yet exactly you know how to tune that you know which words to use and which words not to use I'm still learning um, and so that makes me cautious about just changing everything and switching it all up and throwing out what they did um, because I'm kind of I'm like <laughs> I, don't, I don't have it yet you know so I, I'm still I'm still figuring it out so pause on that real quick. Uh, I wanted to allude uh, to what you said with the illustration. For those of you listening, how do you describe the totality of this phone with language? It's impossible. There's no way you can just describe everything about this phone with infinite amount of words. It doesn't, doesn't matter because words is an abstraction to the idea of this phone and the functionality of this phone and the meaning of this phone to me or to you or whatever. So what uh, Brother Spirit is alluding to is exactly that. So coming back to the, the beautiful um, mastery 
of someone who uh, is a Buddha or a Thich Nhat Hanh who has been articulating the truth with their abstraction, with their narrative, with their words. So I'm curious, someone who is a seeker, who's 100% a student, sometimes mm -hmm. a teacher, myself, is in the articulation, in the grappling, in the attempt, in the effort that I get better in articulating the truth of that. So in the beginning of my journey, I would borrow a lot of you know, right, the, the narratives, the quotes, the, the tools that other teachers have long passed down to, as a way to illustrate my point. But I also realize it's in my own attempt using my own words, I have a much deeper a nuanced understanding of it. So long way to ask this question. Uh, at what point did you stop being a student and start to step into your role as a teacher? Hmm. Well, I don't think I have stopped being a student. Uh, uh -huh. I want to be a student uh, my whole life. But my teacher, you know, I had a kind of realization at one point that, you know, there's a thing that happens, you know, when you have a famous teacher like Tai, mm -hmm. uh, that he was very aware of and really tried to guard against, which is that you end up kind of deifying a little bit the, the teacher. And that's happened with the Buddha too, you know, that people in many countries and different traditions, they kind of make him a little bit into a god. And he, he really tried to say, no, I'm just a human being. And the whole point is that you too can have this depth of understanding and, and wisdom that it's innate in all human beings. Uh, and yet, you know, I see it now, you know, my teacher passed away this year on January 22nd. And there's a tendency to kind of, um, yeah, to, you know, to really kind of venerate him, which is partly very correct, you know, because he's just such an extraordinary human being. But he was you know, like in his teaching and in his life and his way of living, he was always trying to kind of deflect that. He was never ever looking for recognition. Um, like most of his teachings kind of went out into the world and have been disseminated and are now coming back, you know, in other forms and getting appropriated here and there. And he never put his name on it, you know, so a lot of it mm. is to you don't know that it's sticking at hand. It's just, you think that's that's just meditation, but maybe it was actually in large part due to his way of teaching that it's that it has spread and disseminated. Do you mind zooming in that point real quick? Like he found out that what he said some time ago, someone appropriated it or adopted it or changed it without giving attribution. Yeah. It's natural for a regular human. I don't know how thick the Han re react, right? It's this like injustice. I want my credit kind of a thing. How did he interact with, you know, I'm sure it's constant, right? Realization that somebody borrow or steal his material or his ideas. He never, he never said anything about it. Never. He was completely unconcerned. If anything, uh -huh. it's up. It's us who are kind of like, hey, you know, on that app, you know, you talk about walking meditation, but that's that's the way Thai taught walking meditation in Plum Village, and nobody else teaches it like that. Mm. You, know, um, you know, now everybody's talking about mindful dishwashing. Well, you know, who was the first person to talk about mindful dishwashing? Definitely taking your hand. That's like one of his signature practices. You know, now it's just, it's out there. Even mindfulness itself, you know, like, 
really he he was the first person to introduce mindfulness to the west with the with the miracle of mindfulness and now it's it's kind of like you know it's it's everywhere of course like he didn't invent mindfulness it's 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 you know part of an ancient buddhist tradition but his way of teaching it and his way of translating it and making it accessible to a western audience you know yeah i'd say that's been appropriated here and there but he was completely free from any concern about that you know and i think you know sometimes it was almost frustrating it was like please like this you know if we could defend this a little bit more uh you know then maybe you know uh it would be easier to uh you know maintain this large international organization and maintain the buildings and have a little bit more resources <laughs> Yeah. But, so what what you're pointing to is a is a little paradoxical, right? It was very, because, and I think cool. you know he, he was like he doesn't want to be famous. He lived a very very anonymous life. Um, he avoided all so many like potentially uh, kind of reputation making interviews. He would just turn them down. You know, he had this rule. It's like if you're a journalist, you want to come and interview Tai, you have to come and practice in the meditation center for a week before you so he's like if you're not practicing mindfulness you won't understand what i'm talking about mm. so um, and live here for a week and of course most journalists mm. don't have time to do that so then the interview and that's that i appreciate you that is not a requirement to interview you even though i would <laughs> love it to visit plum village one day but i appreciate that it's not a requirement in our conversation not yet <laughs> Yeah, not yet, not yet. Uh, but I want to point to something because uh, in the in the game of bringing more awareness, Buddhism and the practice, and and then also the juice, basically, right? The 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 potential reward of mm -hmm. doing this uh, simple act of meditation and, and following these traditions, it requires profile, prestige, mm -hmm. so then the world knows about this human being or a person or institution at the same time the practice is not about self-importance so right. it's a little paradoxical um how do you reconcile those two notions because you know knowing you i know you're not about self-importance but building reputation helps the entire institution so how do you reconcile that in your mind yeah well i i think um what's wonderful about monastic life so say for example i'm a composer right and i'm mm -hmm. continuing to compose as as a monk so i write chants for the community or i write little bits of music for films and things that we put out into the world mm -hmm. i experience it as a blessing you know that i don't have to um depend on that for my income or my career like it, i don't have to be a famous composer uh, uh i i can just do it out of love mm -hmm. and um and that gives me an incredible freedom as a composer because i'm not mm -hmm. dependent on it for my for my livelihood mm -hmm. um, and in the same way you know when it comes to teaching um whether or not i give a good talk it doesn't matter right i still have you know rice in my bowl at lunchtime and 40 euros a month pocket money and a place to lay my head at night you know and a meditation cushion to sit on um and uh that's that's kind of amazing and also like if maybe i do something 
prominent that sticks out a little bit. But then the next day, you know, I'm just folded back into the brotherhood and the community and I kind of, I get to disappear again um, and be more anonymous, which is a real relief. Like it's, I experience mm. it. It's a wonderful thing um, not to always stick out. And, and yet, like you say, um, for the organization, it's, it's helpful that people know uh, the name, you know, of Plum Village tradition, you know, um, and Plum Village Monastery is, is sort of becoming known as a, um, I guess, something that people can trust, you know, where we haven't had any scandals, like there's high integrity, um, there's a lot of care uh, to maintain our ethics, our ethical conduct, our monastic precepts, you know, all these things we, we really like hold to, um, which then I think does allow people to kind of take refuge and to go, okay, these people are not after my money. They're not, you know, it's not a scam. It's not a cult. It's like, it's sincere. Um, and so that's, that's important. Um, and then, you know, we have the challenge of kind of like, well, so many people want to come. Like this summer, we had a summer opening for, for the first time in the last three years because of COVID. And so we, uh, our, you know, our summer opening was fully booked within 10 minutes. Awesome. Right? Congratulations. Well, it's a great problem to have. Yeah. But what that means is there's many, many poor people who would like to be able to come to Plum Village, but we don't have the facilities to receive them so we don't we just don't have enough rooms mm. uh, or toilets or you know the right kind of water treatment system and 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 so on mm. which means that somehow we need to raise money to build better facilities to be able to receive more people because people want to come so mm. it's not like we're doing it in order to be known as plum village or in order to make a big you know 30 foot golden Buddha or something, you know, it's not about that. It's like, you just want to build simple ecological uh, residence blocks, you know, that, that people can come and stay in and be, you know, live very simply but comfortably so that they can enjoy um, a retreat here. And, and then we have the paradox that because we want to keep our retreat fees very low, mm. it means don't have a lot of surplus. So we, we, we run very, it's a very lean operation when you, I've, I've calculated that I, I think it costs, I don't know exactly, but I think it's about six to 8,000 euros a year per monastic. Mm. Wow. That, and that's like healthcare travel. Um, that's wow. actually a, a share of all our utilities, like yeah. gas, the water, um, that's everything, food, everything um and i don't you know there's not i mean like in france i don't think know how many people can live on on that but, mm. but that's quite hard and yet we you know we live very simply but very well um and as a whole organization we don't we don't have a lot of surplus we just cover our costs with with retreats about 50 percent and 50 percent from donations and that enables us to keep the costs for those retreats low we give a lot of scholarships. You know, we, I don't think we've ever turned anyone away. You know, anybody who wants to come for a retreat, they, you know, we, we, fig we figure it out so that they can come. Awesome. Uh, 
Yeah, and then, but because we want to keep it like that, that means that you know when we have to raise twelve million euros, you know, to renovate all these all these buildings, it's it's a struggle. Like it's it's it is hard. Um, so that's yeah, that's the kind of pinch point that we're in now because it's kind of like we've grown so fast, um, and and now we are this you know we've gone from this little almost refugee village you know that Thai Thai built um, to receive uh, boat people from the Vietnam you know from after the Vietnam War so that they could have a place to land and and nourish their Vietnamese roots and and be connected with other Vietnamese people that from that you know with nothing with no money it's grown into this large international kind of retreat center and with 11 centers around the world um, oh wow yeah then seven amazing wow uh, congratulations i mean that's such good work and i'm very moved inspired by decades of work that mm. uh, your teacher started and the legacy now continues mm. even beyond his lifetime beyond his name right <clears throat> so um and i think you know let's see how do i ask this question well one the opportunities for virtual programs it's something that's really obvious to me, right? If you can't house them physically, I'm sure right. people would rather take a virtual program rather than not having any yeah. support at all. So a virtual program would make it infinitely scalable, so to speak. Uh, and I think it would be, uh, it's figure outable, right? To be yeah. able to do a virtual program. So that's something, mm -hmm. that is something that happened kind of automatically, um, during the pandemic, because we couldn't receive people here mm. because of the lockdown, and so we had to we had to figure out a way to reach people. So we did start offering online retreats. Oh, great! And, you know, our teacher Tai, way back in two thousand nine, he said, "You need to build an online monastery. You know, you need to put all of this stuff online and make it accessible to people, um, so that they don't, you know, if they can't afford to you, travel, as in you personally." use in generally us. Oh, okay. I was like, why you were single out? Uh, that was awesome. Yeah, I was one of one of the you uh one of a small mm. number of us who were kind of like do it. Mm. <laughs> mm. And, um, and we it was a struggle. We were kind of like, but we have no money and you know it's like expensive to figure out and it's difficult to do and all of that. Um and eventually it was COVID that kind of forced us to mm. resolve that problems so we have we did a lot of online retreats but it's not quite infinitely scalable because mm. um the experience i would say like the, the 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 motor of the retreat the thing that really generates the power of the transformation is live um presence in small groups mm. so like we would have maybe one or two monastics per group of 20 people mm. and because there's not an infinite number of us then that you know that limits the number to about a thousand usually like from plum village that we you know that we can reach in in, in a single mm. retreat um but we are looking into how we can take that a little bit further because we have a big international community of trained practitioners and facilitators even if so beyond the monastic community there's you know tens of thousands of other uh, of people in our tradition um who could facilitate those circles so that's actually something that we're going to start doing in uh in august late august is we're going to start awesome. an online well course. please 
please let me and my viewers know this is something that you know i'm down personally i'm sure my viewers would be too uh, i do want to challenge the notion of not being scalable yet all right so mm -hmm. i've done a, a vipassana program i don't know if you ever done what goenkaji's version of vipassana so no. it's his teaching of him recording obviously he's not alive so it was his teaching and then there is a a meditator that would meditate with us but the mm. teaching part yeah. is from goenkaji from i don't know 80s or 70s or something like that so back back in the day just wanted to nudge you a little bit more on the possible uh scalability of the teachings yeah. i think that's kind of how we'll do it you know we're going to have teachings from Thai um, curated and so maybe like a 10 week course or a 12 week course, something like that. And, um, and then there will be some live aspects as well. Uh, some Q and a sessions with us or, you know, circle sharings, but facilitated not only by monastics, but also by lay practitioners. Cause then, you know, it can't maybe not infinitely scalable, but much, you know, we can go from a thousand to 10,000 or mm -hmm. quite easily. Uh, a book you may want to check out. By the way, Brother Spirit, I know I'm giving you unsolicited point, oh, no. uh, you know, uh, resources. We're so, like, like Bruce Lee said, take what's useful, throw out what's not, and make it yours. So, if whatever doesn't land, throw it away. I don't mind. The book that you might want to look into is uh, The Purpose Driven Church hmm. by this mega church founder, Rick Warren. Mm -hmm. He wrote a really famous book called The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, mm -hmm. he wrote another book called The Purpose Driven Coach. It's about the mechanics of how they built this massive church, international church. So okay. you may want to look into that. Oh, check it out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think church, th this is totally a side thing. It has a slightly different flavor mm -hmm. of one a monastery. I think, mm -hmm. I think people have this idea that monks ought to have a vow of poverty so mm. people charge very little for the great service and the goodwill that and in healing that you're helping people do but um but i think you know as a as a conscious capital capitalist i think maybe you could raise your price a little bit so <laughs> so yeah. that you can build a 12 million uh you know dollar worth of infrastructure so that you can receive more people you know so with we, all we, the... we, we do have a vow of poverty i mean we we live very, very simply as monastics. Um, but we do also want to be able to, yeah, offer a retreat experience, which is, of, you know, it has to be up to code, for example, it has to be up to the European mm -hmm. standard mm -hmm. in the public. And that just doing that is very expensive to be up to the fire code and, mm -hmm. you know, everything else, handicap accessibility and, and so on. Um, so yeah, it's it's a question, and we're we're kind of actively looking into it. One thing that we can do is offer some um, kind of bespoke retreats to mm -hmm. um, you know to corporations and so on who can pay more, mm -hmm. and then make keep our retreats accessible to as many people as possible. So without raising the prices too much for mm -hmm. for people mm -hmm. to come, because we don't want we're not interested in only serving. A kind of wealthy clientele um, mm -hmm. that would be counter to our our kind of purpose and mission. Mm -hmm. um, but may, but there are maybe ways to to have uh, you know people who can 
support at a higher level, uh, make it possible for, 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 for everyone else to continue to, to come and have that experience. So it's happening, happening, mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah that's I mean, definitely something I didn't expect as a monk. I was kind of like, wow, I'm going to be in a fundraiser. <laughs> fundraiser, <laughs> setting prices, no. yeah. <laughs> things like that. Um, like managing a multi-million euro construction project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. Interesting how life takes you. In terms of governance, and I'm interested in this, not so much on the Plum Village as an example, but because you as a group are so successful in scaling transformation, awakening mm -hmm. in the you know uh, engaged monastic way that you are, uh, what was the word I was going to ask? Oh, governance, right. Yeah. So, so governance is always being challenging hmm. in conscious organization because corruption is so easy, right? Yeah. The guruship, the, you know, exploitation of uh, students and so on and so forth. So, so you seem to be doing well as a group collectively and a very high level of integrity and also, uh, operation wise worldwide hmm. and everything. How do you govern decision-making, yeah. you know, allocation of resources, expansion and all these decision-making type things? It's a very good question. So one thing is that Tai, uh, when he was alive, did not consider himself the boss, you know, the CEO, the leader. He was a teacher, but he didn't actually, it was a kind of extraordinary. He didn't really involve himself in the day-to-day -day decision-making Process. Even though if he had, you know, everybody would have said yes, Tai. You know, everybody would have just listened and gone, okay, whatever you want, boss. You know, we 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 got it. But he deliberately didn't do that um, because he knew that if he made us dependent on him for all the decisions, then once he was gone, then the whole thing would fall apart. So he was mm -hmm. looking much further ahead and also relying on. I mean, you got to realize that like, the Buddhist monastic um, uh, kind of. Uh, organism, you know, is very ancient. It's maybe the one of the most ancient, continuously existent um, organizations on the planet. Um, and, and so it has built in kind of protections for exactly this kind of thing. So one thing is consensus decision making. So in principle, uh, for any important decisions, um, it has to be the Council of Bhikshus uh, or the Council of, of what? Bhikshus are fully ordained monks, and I see. Got it. Fully ordained nuns. Mm -hmm. So the Bhikshuni Council or the Bhikshu Council are the kind of decision-making bodies, mm. and the decisions are taken by consensus. So it's kind of one person, one voice. It's very democratic. Everybody can speak. But it's this weird. It's a very, very interesting combination of democracy and hierarchy because. There, so everybody has a voice, but there's a recognition that those who have been in the monastic practice longer, you know, so maybe somebody who's been a monk for 30 years or 30, 40 years, just has a depth of insight and, and wisdom that it's going to be a little bit different from somebody who's just been practicing for three years. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so somehow when that brother speaks, if he speaks, it carries a little extra weight, but there's no voting. Right, so the idea is everybody has to um, arrive at consensus. That means everybody has a chance to share, and then there's a 
period of kind of listening to the whole community where you get to sort of feel like which way the community is leaning. And then the facilitator will say, okay, I'd like to propose uh, this as a consensus. You have to have a skillful uh, you know, facilitator who can include enough of the different views that have been expressed to make sure everybody feels that they've been heard. And then if there's one or two people who, who really have a different view, they are basically invited for the sake of harmony to let go of their view. So you can't, so the problem in a voting system is that you always have some proportion of people who are disgruntled and it's maybe up to 50%, you know, mm -hmm. unhappy, right? So that's not, that's not great for long-term harmony. Whereas with consensus, mm -hmm. in principle, with every single decision that's made, you can only make the decision when everybody has agreed to it. Everybody kind of goes, okay, yes, this is the way we're going to go. Um, and that relies on the thing is that only works because everybody's meditating, you know, everybody's, mm -hmm. everybody's recognizing their emotions, you know, when they get triggered by something, by a, by a view, you know, they, they recognize like, Oh, okay, this is touching something in my past. You know, I'm getting triggered. I need to take care of my emotions. I need to calm myself down. You know, I need to, check my perception you know am i sure that that's what they're saying did i misunderstand you know it's, mm -hmm. it relies on a very very high level of kind of self-awareness of each member uh, and a depth of listening and presence which is sadly maybe a little bit lacking in our current uh, you know political arenas um, but it's very beautiful it's very powerful when we are able to do that and you know the the you feel energized after a meeting like that, you know, after, mm. and I, I have the experience of going into a meeting, really thinking like, okay, it has to go like this. But then once I've listened to my brothers, I can do a complete 180. I'm kind of like, Oh, I really hadn't seen these other aspects. And I'm, I totally let go of my view and I'm, I, I see things, think things in a completely new way. And that's a wonderful thing. Like I want that. I don't want to, just be confirmed in my own view. That means I haven't learned anything. Like mm -hmm. if I can be wrong, you know, then I've learned something, and that's so that's a that's a good thing. Um, so I think it was very interesting that Tai actually let us. You know, I I kind of saw him. I felt like sometimes he let us make mistakes as an organization. He let us do things that he could see wouldn't work or would maybe cause a car crash, you know, further down the line. Um, but he let us do it because he knew that that ultimately would mm -hmm. allow us to grow and to learn and to get stronger. And mm -hmm. if he intervened and said, you know, no, like, you know, you should really make this decision, then, you know, it would just, it, it, we, we would be kind of infantilizing and, and it would undermine the power of that, of that big shoe council or big shooting council and I so yeah. so interested in what the proceed uh, normally i'm not interested in like c-span type of right tv shows and watching the political process but this sounds fascinating <laughs> i know it's <laughs> obviously private and closed but i would just like i love to just be a fly in the wall and just <clears throat> see how how this meeting is conducted yeah no it's a very special thing and our our abbot um brother mm. Uh, is a master at this. Like we were very, very lucky. Like we, he, he became a monk when he was thirteen, 
and so he's really steeped in this tradition and um he has a great skill in in you know including all the views uh, making everybody feel that you know what that you know their sharing has been heard and recognized and in included in the consensus in the in the synthesis of of views um yeah the, he, the, you can find some stuff on his podcast about that the, 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 he has his, a podcast yeah the way out is in okay i will yeah. i will i will check the, him out thank you check it out. yeah it's yeah. wonderful amazing um, do you mind if we do some rapid fire questions? I know sure. the nature of our conversation is in rapid fire, but you know we're gonna try to do a little more rapid fire. Is that cool? Yep. So, what attracted you in the very beginning of monastic life or coming to meditation retreats is the possibility of superpowers, right? ESPs, extrasensory powers, and they hear that a lot in other traditions, right? You touch, you know, their eye here and you see your past lives or whatever the lore may be. Having been practicing since 2008, what would you say, you know, a long time practitioner, the quote unquote superpower it will give you? Mm. Well, I think there are many, but um, one is to be comfortable with discomfort yeah i think you know we we may think about attaining happiness or or peace or something like that as being like, like a constant state of bliss but in fact i don't think that's what it is happiness is actually is just accepting things as they are and being okay with that you know having a kind of equanimity um with suffering with pain you know with discomfort uh and discovering maybe that that discomfort or suffering or pain is not actually discomfort suffering or pain it might be just to do with our way of conceiving it our way of perceiving it our way of perceiving ourselves um and so it's this kind of like capacity to touch into uh yeah, happiness in the present moment, which is a kind of profound okayness with things just as they are, uh, even if, like on another level, they might things might not be as you would ideally wish them to be, but you're kind of still okay with it. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's something that I see uh, more and more from yeah in my experience. Beautiful. I love it. Uh, quick share. Uh, 2022 has been a pivotal year for me because I started to sit with uh, ayahuasca with indigenous leaders. And one of their core teaching is the phrase solegria, which means only joy. Mm. So that's you know, just over and over again, solegria, solegria during a very intense ayahuasca you know journeys and up and down and and i'm learning as a human to just to have joy no matter what level of intensity it may be high or low doesn't matter just you know even i'm stuck in traffic or my rental car has been delayed four hours just only joy only joy only joy <laughs> so. called um uh, he, he he said he said this phrase drista dhamma sukha vihara 
which means uh, dwelling happily in the present moment. Mm. So drista is actually the verb, uh, the root of the verb is to see. So it's kind of drista dharma is phenomena. So it's the phenomena which are now, that which is now being seen, mm. sukha, happiness, vihara, dwelling. So it's like dwelling happily in that which is now being seen, which is a kind of proxy for which is being heard, felt, you know, tasted, smelled, mm. cognized. So it's like the present moment the, the, is, it is always possible to dwell happily in the present moment. Mm. That's kind of like the, that's the gem uh, in mm. the heart of the lotus. That's the secret, which is very strange because we conceive of happiness in our culture completely differently. We usually think of happiness, mm. as, which comes to us once, you know, this or only mm. when that, mm. only mm. if not this, mm. once this finished or once I have completed this, once I have achieved that, once I have become this, once I've got rid of that, once I'm away from that person, and once I'm with that other person, once I have it, <laughs> always deferred, right? Happened mm -hmm. always. later, once something. And of course, it never comes because all mm -hmm. we have, all we have is this one mm -hmm. moment. And so the trick is to realize that you know, because when I heard my teacher, you know, sharing that, and he would say, well, the Buddha said, it is possible to dwell happily in the present moment. I would always say to myself, but but how? You know, like, when is he going to tell us how it's possible? Mm. Right? And then at a certain moment, I realized, well, if there's a how, if there's something that you have to do, then it's not the present moment. Mm. Right. If there's a how, then it's in the future because it's like after I've done the how, then I'll be happy. Mm. So the secret is there is no how. Right? Because it's already now. It's one of those the truisms that it's impossible to refute, but it makes the mind crazy. Absolutely. It should yeah, just be here now and, you know, get the, the only joy in this moment. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> very it makes them like go crazy. But, you know, I have trauma or, but, you know, what happened to me or, but I'm in debt or, you know, it's like, yeah. And yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely a, a longer talk. So speaking of rapid fire, let me get back on track on that. <laughs> All right. No, no, it's perfect. I, I love our conversation. So what about you and I, we met from Rome research. You are, you embrace modern technology. You embrace scientific reading, scientific paper and citing scientific paper. So you are obviously a practitioner of um, meditation practices, but you also uh, have practices that hone your mind using, mm. you know, home research and so on and so forth. Reconcile for us how, uh, maybe this is not a rapid fire question, but how do you, how do you hone your mind and at the same time still being present? Mm. Well, I, I would put it differently. I'd say like being present, learning to be present is honing the mind. Okay. That's the honing the mind. 
um, because that's the, you know, like I was saying right at the beginning, that's the fundamental mind skill is mm. presence and concentration and stability of attention. And all meditation ultimately is about developing that stability of attention mm. and about uh, the possibility of choosing what it is that we attend to and 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 how long we can stay with that object of contemplation because usually like if you decide to think about something what happens is the mind wanders you may be thinking about it for a few seconds uh, and then your mind you know wanders off somewhere uh, you may like if you pick up a leaf on the path and you say oh, i'm going to contemplate this leaf and try to understand you know the nature of the interconnection of the leaf and the tree and the clouds and the cosmos you know but after a while you know few seconds probably you're thinking about something else but if as a meditator you have the capacity to pick an object of contemplation and stay with it so that's the fundamental mind skill and then all the other stuff like rome research and the technology you know i see it as kind of like any other tool in the sense that um like a knife you know a knife can cut uh, but it can cut you as well you know it can it can kill um, but it can also serve like it can be very very helpful um harmless uh you know if skillfully used but it can also do a lot of damage so i think all technology is a little bit like that a phone you know can be an instrument of total destruction and distraction um but if you use it skillfully you know maybe it can be an instrument of connection and you know like you can reconcile with somebody maybe tonight you know you can call somebody you thought that you would never be able to speak to again and just forgive them or, you know, uh, listen, be able to really listen to their voice again, you know, and I see that happen. Like every retreat, there's, there's kind of the miracle of reconciliation happens. And we often tell people, it's like, like, use your telephone, like call them tonight. Don't wait, you know, while you are feeling this love and openness, like, reach out connect um but they're very difficult to handle like technology sometimes is taking us uh you know my teacher told this story sorry this is not the rapid fire kind of no, it's great no go for it yeah he, he gave a talk actually a very important talk um he was invited to google in 2011 and 2013 and so he gave talks there for the google employees um and then when he came back to Plum Village, he gave a talk, I think, in 2014, which he called uh, Technology is the Horse. You know, so then he, he tells this story, which is uh, an old Chinese story, I think, um, you know, about a guy who's riding on the back of a horse very fast. You know, the horse is galloping along and there's a guy on the side of the lane who says, hey, where are you going? And he says, I don't know. Ask the horse. <laughs> right out of control uh, horse is going and and then ty is saying well technology is the horse mm. and we think that we know where we're going but sometimes you know we're just doing things because we can and we're just you know creating innovations because because they're possible and you know because it's because we're curious and because we can maybe not always asking ourselves what the ethical implications are um like you know i know very well some of the people who were involved in the you know the very small team that were that created the iphone 
And they've shared with me that in a sense, they have a kind of, um, they feel a moral responsibility to, uh, to kind of account for some of the harm, mm -hmm. you know, you know, when they go to a restaurant and they see a family, a mother, father, and two children are all looking at iPhones instead of talking to each other. You know, they're realizing like, wow, that's not what we intended. And yet that's, that's what happened. You know, you've given people, you know, this, this kind of irresistible, addictive thing, this kind of slot machine that they have in their pocket and they just keep scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And I think that so what they told me is that they, what they didn't foresee was the dimension of social media, you know, because I think they, you know, they were working very closely with Steve Jobs and, and they said that for him, it was quite sentimental. It was kind of like give people their memories, give people their photos, so they can always have their photos and give people their music, you know, their emotions, so they could always have their music and always have their photos and always be in touch with their loved ones. And that's a beautiful vision, but they didn't foresee that on, to, on this platform, you would then have Facebook and all other social media and this kind of infinite scroll. And so, yeah, they, they are now actively engaged in kind of in creating another kind of technology, which would hope they believe will take us off the screens and more mm. into life and interaction, but it's top secret and I'm not allowed to tell you about it. So that's okay. Um, <laughs> I am, I wish him success. It feels mm. like, um, this is about to go into a non rapid fire question. <laughs> well, okay. We care about waking people up and transformation, you know, provide them more healing and recovery and transcendence, all the beautiful things that we as human beings uh, are and we, what's within our reach. Right. Um, however, I'm curious to know your thoughts. How do we work with the ego, what the ego wants, the ego wants significance, you know, validation, how, how, how could we create a game that goes with what the ego desires and also give them what they need as well versus just telling or appeal to the higher self, Hey, mm. this is a game of no win situation. Like stop doing this, be more present here. Not, you know what I mean? Could you no, no, give no, it back I, to me? How you, how you receive it? So we can maybe I'm fine tune the question a bit. So. I would say that um, we maybe have a perception that ethical conduct, like really like deeply ethical conduct is kind of boring or dull, or it wouldn't be very fun. You know, it's like just eating oatmeal all day long. You know, it's like, um, I like I, oatmeal. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I like oatmeal too. Actually, oatmeal mm -hmm. But, um, uh, but I think, you know, as you go forward on the path of practice, maybe what you discover, what I feel like I'm discovering is that um, ethical conduct is uh, a relief. It's a refuge. It's, it's a peaceful, joyful, happy place. Because in that moment that I'm not causing any harm to myself or to anyone else, um, I can, it's, it's like a, 
that's happiness. That is happiness in that moment because we, we're very sensitive beings. Like we don't want to cause harm. We really don't. And yet pulled by our desires and our craving for fame, success, you know, wealth, riches, sex, and so mm -hmm. on. We, we do cause harm sometimes a lot to ourselves with our various addictions and, and to others around us. Like we sacrifice our relationship sometimes for our career. You know, we, we, we sacrifice um, our dreams uh, for security. You know, we, we sacrifice um, our friends for uh, money. You know, uh, most people who win the lottery end up miserable and regret ever having won it because it tears them apart. It tears their, their friendships apart, you know, because suddenly everything is distorted by the presence of that of that inequality of that of that large amount of money uh, it doesn't help in the way that they think it does or that they think that they think it would um so it's it's kind of the realization that uh not doing harm is the reward you know mm -hmm. that's the happiness already it's not and again it's not in the future it's now you know, when I think of my ancestors, it's a practice that we have in our tradition is to realize that our ancestors are all present within us, right? So my, my father, my mother, my grandparents, but not only my genetic lineage, but my um, kind of uh, mentorship lineage, right? All my teachers are in me, you know, my cello teachers, my piano teachers, my composition teachers, my teachers in the spiritual path, my mathematics teachers, they've all touched me and influenced me and shaped me. Um, and not only that, but, you know, the, the, all my kind of biological ancestry, you know, beyond even the human, but the non-human realms, all the food systems that we're connected into, the air that we breathe, you know, we're, we're like completely enmeshed. Um, and when I think back, you know, I see like some of my ancestors struggled uh, with exactly this. You know, they 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 wanted things, um, and and those desires caused them sometimes um, to do harm, right? Mm -hmm. To to hurt themselves and to hurt those around them, and sometimes that's it's it's like a cycle that repeats. You know, and like when your father is hard on you and then you end up being hard on your own children and you you know it's hard like why am i i'm repeating the same pattern and yet we do like you know trauma is passed down generation to generation to generation and so the moment that we get to say stop you know if we as practitioners as as recipients of spiritual lineages that give us the tools to handle those habits and stop them you know, to handle that suffering and embrace it and heal it and transform it, we are very lucky because maybe we're the first in the lineage to be able to say, I don't have to be pushed by my desire. I can say stop mm. and I can celebrate that in this moment, even after many, many generations of habit and doing harm, I'm in this moment not doing harm and that is a win not just for me but for the whole lineage like my grandfather mm. in that moment can celebrate like because mm. it's not wanted like he didn't want to hurt anyone 
you know, but he did out of his habits. And so when I can stop, he also stop, gets to stop. Mm -hmm. And that happiness kind of resonates all the way up uh, the, 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 the lineage. And so that's mm -hmm. the rule. I love it. Is there any last idea, last thought that I know we cover a lot of ground in our mm -hmm. conversation. Is there any last thought that SCK really wanted to drive this home mm. to your viewer, to your listeners? Well, I think, um, yeah, one, one very big thing that's on the horizon, I think, for the whole of humanity right now is the climate crisis and the mm. many intersecting crises of poverty, inequality, um, you know, social injustice, uh, and uh, racism, sexism, um, discrimination against, you know, uh, gender, diversity, all, you know, the full kind of spectrum of the rainbow of humanity, um, all these different types of uh, injustice that we're facing, with the collapse of our life support system on this planet, potentially accelerating kind of effects that we're seeing, the, the heat waves, the floods, the fires, um, the storm surges, the hurricanes. Um, there's a sense, I think, especially for the young, for, for, for younger people, you know, maybe people in their teenage, in their teens, um, and in their twenties that like, what is my, what is my future? You know, what does my future look like? And, you know, I know there's people thinking like, why should I bother, you know, getting, finishing my education when I don't know if there's going to be a society in which I can get a job, you know, in, in 20 years, like what's the point of having a family uh, or is it even just to have a child when, you know, the child, the, the world I'm going to bring this child into maybe is, going to be a lot less diverse and rich and beautiful than the world I was born into, you know, maybe there's a million species facing extinction. Um, you know, we're going to have, we're already seeing wars brought on by climate stress, and there's probably likely going to be more, there's going to be displacement of populations, you know, we're already seeing climate migrants, parts of the world are going to become fairly uninhabitable, um, more and more uninhabitable and maybe quicker than we realize. And those people are going to look for somewhere else to live. And then our political systems are going to be strained by that. They'll probably drift to the right, you know, uh, fear, uh, closing borders, increasing nationalism, um, fear of immigration, fear of refugees. All of that could happen. Um, I think it's actually quite likely to happen. So how can we know that? And, 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 you know, to the extent that we know it, right. It's, of course, it's all a little bit that there's some projection speculation. We, 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 we don't know exactly, but the, the writings on the wall, I mean, the, the, the trends are pretty stark. Um, how can we be with that and not fall into despair and, mm -hmm. and, Boomism. Uh, how can we still touch joy in every moment, happiness in every moment? Like, how do those things fit together? Knowing what we know, knowing that life is maybe going to get very difficult, and we may see human suffering on a scale that we've never before see, seen. You know, not even the Second World War. You know, that's like millions of people dying. This could be hundreds of millions. This could be 
you know, really, really, really tough. Um, how do we face that? How do we hold that? And how do we still take the action that we can take, right? And not become uh, indifferent or, or numb or frozen or stuck or going to panic uh, or despair. That's a question that I face a lot for myself and many, many people come to us and with that kind of question. Um, and so, yeah, it's important for me, you know, uh, thank you for the opportunity. I, I, I feel like uh, it's very but Are you writing a book, by the way, on that? Because, you know, you, you, you raised a really valid point. Yeah. You know, we don't just want to leave people there. Are you writing a book on that? Are you starting a well, series of talks on it? Yeah. So I can say a few things. So first of all, there's a wonderful book that just came out last year called Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet by taking mm. a hand um, mm. with to true dedication uh wrote a commentary um and uh it's a, it's a wonderful wonderful book so it, can, it contains you know really his, his all his deepest teachings on the environment climate crisis um situation of our world so whatever i say in a sense is coming from that body of of, of teaching as well and we all of us young dharma teachers we continue to try to enrich that strand of, of teaching and to offer talks that are that are relevant to that so probably you know most of my talks on youtube at some point or other you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm relating to that that kind of uh, awareness that the, the 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 anxiety that lives that dwells within us um mm. as a result of that knowledge so what i would say right not to leave people empty-handed uh in the face of that because i know it's very heavy right it's very like Wow, you know, it, it's it's very painful to know that we are co-responsible also for you know this world that we that we live in. We're still participating in the destruction, right? We still use cars and planes and trains and and, and energy producing systems that are you know dependent on fossil fuels. And we still use plastic packaging and all of these things. Like what are we what can we do? So I would say, um, one thing that I'm very focused on is that we need to uh, face the possibility of our own extinction. It's kind of like facing our own death, right? We know we're going to die, right? We don't think about it very much, but actually to think about it, to contemplate our own death every day is very empowering because it makes, you know, the life that we have very precious we have to realize like the moments that we have still alive on this planet are very very precious because one day we will die but that's also true at the level of our civilization like our civilizations end right they all uh, all civilizations before us have you know have risen and had a period of prosperity and then and then have come to an end one way or another and our, our civilization is no different at some point it will collapse whether that's in 50 years, 100 years, or 1,000 years, or a million years, we don't know. But it's very important psychologically to kind of accept that possibility and to see that with, to, to find some serenity with our own death, but also with our collective death. You know, maybe the extinction of humanity. Um, it's very difficult, but you know, when you, when, if you can zoom out sufficiently, 
to a kind of galactic timescale, universal timescale, you see that, well, okay, so the Earth is a is like a flower in the garden of the galaxy, and it is it has this beautiful flower, uh, rich abundance of life. Um, and human life is only one part of that. And the earth will continue, even if we as humanity are wiped out by our own uh, greed and, and stupidity. Um, you know, the earth will bring forth other species. And maybe that, the, you know, that what it is that it uh, that, that is us, there's something that's inextinguishable. There's something that will always be carried forward, transmitted, communicated, even if it's in a different form with different species, um, life continues. And so there's, I find serenity in that. And what that allows me to do is to touch peace and freedom. What's what we call the kind of the ultimate dimension. It's like seeing eternity in this present moment that like you see that we participate in the lifespan of the cosmos, not our, not only our own lifespan, like we're part of something much, much, much bigger, which goes beyond humanity. Like we're not so self-important, you know. Like humanity is just one aspect of what we are. Like we are our body. This is only like a tiny fragment of what we really are. We are also this. We are the world. The environment is not outside of you. It is you. And the environment is not just this planet, but it's the whole cosmos. When you realize that you are the cosmos, well, the extinction of this body, this species, this civilization doesn't matter so much. But that doesn't make you indifferent, and it doesn't mean that you don't do anything. What it does, it gives you the freedom from the panic and the despair, then to get back into the historical dimension and stay engaged and stay in action but you act with the freedom of eternity right but and with the urgency of the present moment right so we don't want to act with panic and make the situation worse but we want to act with with this abundance of peace and serenity and freedom because maybe then our actions will have a better impact and be a little bit more sensible so then when you come to the action part okay this is it right the last part the last thing I will say, right, we know that in, in the situation of the climate, there are three key things that have to happen, right? We have to have mitigation, which means we have to stop polluting. We have to stop emitting greenhouse gases. You know, we have to stop doing the harm, right? We have to mitigate the harm. Then we have to have adaptation, which means that we have to adapt our infrastructure. We have to adapt, you know, our food production. Um, we have to adapt our cities. We have to adapt everything to be able to live on a hotter planet with more violent weather events, uh, stronger heat waves and fire and flood and all the rest. Mitigation, adaptation, everybody's talking about mitigation and adaptation. And then, the, but there's a third part, which is human resilience. Who is going to do the mitigation and the adaptation is people. And if those people are overwhelmed by basically, you know, climate trauma, you know, the trauma of seeing other people, you know, maybe millions or tens of millions of people dying uh, or being displaced or being in situations of war, maybe they themselves being in situations of war, they themselves being displaced. It's traumatizing. I mean, even just the thought that we might 
be wiped out can be traumatizing, the anxiety that that can bring up. So if everybody's frozen, you know, in overwhelm or trauma, or if they're panicking, then they're not going to do any mitigation and they're not going to do any, any adaptation because they're going to be freaking out, you know, um, or, or just paralyzed. Uh, and so I think this is the kind of, like when I look at, you know, this, what I have received, what we have received as an, as a tradition, uh, the, the kind of lineage of teachings that we belong to, I think that's where we can really contribute. We can help people to build human resilience. We can help. It's basically trauma therapy at scale. It's kind of like, okay, we need to teach people how to handle the panic, the overwhelm in themselves, first of all, how to be okay with that, like comfort with the discomfort, right? Feeling joy in the present moment, happiness in the present moment, even though things are bad, right? Even when things are really bad, to still be able to touch freedom and peace. And then teach them also to be able to help others who are facing those overwhelming feelings of panic and anxiety. And so you're kind of training the trainers, you know, it's like you first you have to take care of yourself and then you help the people around you to take care of themselves. And then you learn how to train them as well to help others. And then it, and then it spreads and it scales. And I think that's what, that's what could maybe make a real difference. And that gives me the kind of sense of urgency of the collective awakening as well, because if we really can become a more compassionate society, a more uh, awake society, a wiser society, one in which, um, you know, there's a deeper understanding of how to generate a feeling of joy in every moment. And there's a deeper understanding of how to take care of a feeling of pain, a feeling of overwhelm, a feeling of despair in every moment. And those two things are linked, right? Because if you know how to feel it, generate a feeling of joy, then actually your joy starts to take care of your pain, right? So they're not really separate. And if you can take care of your pain, well, then you have a lot more joy. Mm. Uh, and understand, especially you have compassion, because once, you know, if you are tender and vulnerable and, and you know, able to be, to contact and to feel your own pain, then you will not be indifferent to the pain of others. Um, and you'll be sensitive to it and, uh, and, and you will care, you know, <laughs> you will want to help. And that's, that's the kind of society I'd like to, to live in. Uh, and I think that's the kind of society as well that can navigate the various crises that we're in more skillfully and maybe even avoid them. Um, but it's kind of like we're getting down to the wire. You know, it is urgent. It's urgent that we all wake up because time is time is running out if we're going to save this this civilization of us. I think it's possible. Um, I'm very hopeful about that because I see, you know, wherever I go, I see collective awakening. You know, I see people going on retreats. I see people taking care of themselves, people wanting to behave more ethically, take responsibility for their for their consumption, their production, their way of life, their relationships. Um, and that, so I, I see a lot of reasons for, 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 for hope, um, for optimism. Uh, and I feel a lot of, uh, yeah, I get a lot of energy from that, the sense that this makes a difference, like teaching people how to take care of themselves, like 
and and how do I teach them is by doing it myself. Like mm. if I can't, then there's nothing to teach. You know, I I really have to be honest with myself. Like how well am I taking care of my own suffering, my own emotions, my own you know ups and downs. Um, and if I'm doing that, then I think I have something to share with others, and and I see it making a difference. You know, and I say I, but it's really we. It's like collectively. Um, Plum Village, I, you know, I, I really, you know, see the people who come on retreat, they maybe come with a lot of tension around their eyes, anxiety, you know, things are burning them after five days or a week. They're glowing, you know, they're fresh, they're full of joy and life and, and, and love. And, and those waves are going out into the world, you know, week after week after week after every retreat and a thousand people, another thousand, another thousand, you know, they're going out. And, and they're touching, you know, people in their families, in their places of work, in their schools, communities. Um, so I think it's it's happening. The collective awakening is is well underway, mm. and I thank you also for being uh, for being a part of that. Brother Spirit, thank you for such a rich conversation. Um, beyond the content, beyond your stories, beyond you know, the details of how you collectively run this beautiful organization called Plum Village. I really get your presence. I really get your commitment. I really get the work that you're doing, first of all, to yourself, but second of all, caring for everyone that you interact with, right? The conscientiousness, the intentionality is very palpable. So mm -hmm. your teacher, you're, you're definitely a disciple of your teacher the way you describe him. So uh, thank you for the work that you do personally, as well as uh, what Plum Village is is up to. And for those of you that are inspired by Brother Spirit's words, his teachings, and what he's up to in, in, in as a way to impact the planet, right, at scale, trauma therapy at scale, as he calls it, uh, go to plumvillage.org and go to thicknonhan foundation.org forward slash donate they could use your support so <laughs> yes thank you so much for being here but the main support you know if you do want to connect and support us the main thing that you can do is just take a moment to come back to stop what you're doing and take three mindful breaths in and out and just enjoy Enjoy the sensation of being alive. Enjoy your in-breath. Smile with your out-breath. You recognize that you are still alive. You have a body. You know, you can still hopefully see, hear, smell, taste, touch, you know, be close to your loved ones. There's still so much to celebrate and to enjoy. And, and it, sometimes we just need to take a little pause. So that's the, yeah, that's the way you can support really what we're doing is just by bringing a little bit more awareness and mindfulness into your life uh, and sharing that with, with others. But don't forget, I donate, donate, donate. <laughs> yes, do that and donate. All right. Yeah. Uh, until we meet again, thank you so much.